0: Well, good morning, Foothill. Good to see you all here. I'm Pastor Chris, one of the pastors around here. It's good to see you all here this morning. Uh, if you are over at Grand Avenue and you're watching this via video, uh, I want to say a special welcome to you, and um, especially if you're new, kind of wondering what's going on, why is it that I'm watching this guy via video? What's happening is uh, the church began to grow, and over the years, uh, we've tried to do all different kinds of services, and somebody next to you can probably tell you the story better as, as well as I can and so we have moved our services all around then we discovered hey we got these two campuses right next to each other we're literally right around the block and um, so we thought what if we just hooked them up by a technology put the both the services at 9 and 11 and did it this way and so that's what's happening and uh, so about half the time someone will be live here at baseline half the time over there at grand and uh, we'll be with you and so no no uh you know no one campus is kind of the redheaded stepchild and my apologies to redheaded stepchildren but uh, you, you get you get what I'm saying, and so this is uh, we'll be there about half the time, and uh, but we're linked together. We're doing this all live. You got live worship and all that going on at both campuses. And just the uh, the sermon will be fed back and forth, depending on the week and depending on where you are. Uh, it'll be live or via this video, okay? So, uh, but we're still going to do the same thing. We're still going to listen to the Word of God and, and find out what it says. And so everybody, both at Grand and here, grab your Bibles or grab your Bible app or or your Foothill Church app. And let's, uh, let's open to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 11 through 14. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now let me... Let me explain a little bit of what's happening here and give you some greater context. If, you, if you've been here, then you know that what Paul is doing is he's defending his apostleship. He's, he's saying to these churches in what is now modern-day southern Turkey, he's saying to them, believe what I've, I've said, believe what I've taught you, because it comes directly from God. And, and he's doing that in all kinds of ways. I want you to see, and he begins to sort of unpack why that's true. I heard this from Jesus Christ. I didn't learn it from the apostles. In fact, last week he says, after 14 years, the amazing thing is, I went up to Jerusalem after having preached this gospel for 14 years, and, uh, and, and I realized that, that the, the apostles and I have all been preaching the same gospel the entire time, which is pretty remarkable. Right? So, so he's telling this story of his life, and in that he's defending his apostleship, and in that we learn all kinds of amazing things. So one of the stories he then tells, he says, okay, so we're in Jerusalem, and then we went back up to Antioch. Antioch is in Syria, it's up north, if you were to look at a map, and Antioch was a place, according to the book of Acts, where Christians were actually first called Christians, kind of a, a pejorative term it wasn't necessarily a compliment to call someone a christian they were little christs and but there was apparently a vibrant christian community up there predominantly gentile so this became kind of this this missions outpost for paul he would pass through there going to and from his missionary journeys so this apparently is one of those times paul's up there and Peter's up there with them, and Barnabas and some other uh, of the leaders, and they are enjoying. They're looking around saying, man, isn't this wonderful? Look at what God has done. He has brought Jew and Gentile together in Christ, and this is what makes up this body of Christ. This is who we are. But then some Jews show up. and we've talked about them before. There's these Jews that would follow Paul around and would go and sort of preach behind him and say, well, I know he told you the gospel is all of grace, but we need to kind of correct Paul and help you understand it's not all of grace. You got to add something to it. You got to be circumcised. You got to obey the Old Testament law. And it says when that happened, then Peter, he was fellowshipping with with the Gentiles. He's eating a meal with them, and he separates himself from the Gentiles. Now, what's going on? Like, why is this such a big deal that Peter would feel like he has to separate himself from people that a day before he called my brothers and sisters? These are, we're all together in this. Well, to understand that, you need to understand something about the Old Testament law. Okay, so I'm not going to walk you through that and then just sort of summarize this for you. You'll notice if you read your Old Testament, you run into all of these very strange, archaic feeling laws. Like things that tell you, you know, you can't wear a polycotton blend shirt, right? No, no woven or mixed fabrics. You can't eat shellfish, you can't, if you have certain diseases, then you can't come into the presence of God or worship or whatever if, if, uh, if you associate with certain people, right? And so a meal is this very intimate, it's this very, um, you know, you're my brother, you're my sister. Even in a lot of cultures today, it's a big deal to share a meal. Now, why did the Old Testament have all of these rules, right? Because we read it and some of you kind of get confused. Like, what am I looking at? What's this about all these diseases? And if you got this kind of, you know, a white hair on, on white skin and there's something, then that person's unclean. But if it's black and it's white, and it's, I mean, it's just so bizarre, right? So you read it and say, what is happening here? Why are there all these regulations? Well, here's what the Old Testament is doing. There's all of these laws that are meant to put fences around people to make sure that you either stay ritually pure... Or you actually go through some sort of ritual cleansing because the entire Old Testament law is screaming in every way God knows how that I, God, am holy, you people are sinful and holiness and sinfulness cannot come together. So what needs to happen is you've got to be ritually pure. So now we have the sacrificial system. Why? Because you, I've got to, I've got to be cleansed. There's got to be some sort of ceremony that makes me clean before God, allows me to be into His presence. This is why, this is why I have to wear certain kinds of fabric and not certain kinds. I can't eat certain unclean animals. All of these kinds of things are because of this ceremonial law, this way of making you pure or making you impure inside of a holy, in the sight of a holy God. Now Jesus comes along. And in Mark chapter 7, verse 19, it says in front of everybody, in front of his disciples, he declares all food clean. That's a big deal. Like if you are if you are a Jew to this day you're not going to eat pig you're not going to eat shellfish right there's all these things there's these dietary laws that you must keep if you go if you go and spend some time in Israel you'll notice that if it's a very if you're in an orthodox or any, any kind of hotel that caters to Jews at all you're going to go and you're going to have breakfast you're going to have all your all your dairy and there will be no meat. It will be a meatless breakfast, and then in the evening, you'll have all meat, and there will be no dairy. Why do they do that? They're trying to obey the Old Testament law, where you don't mix the two. So so they'll even do it in separate kitchens, all these kind of things, to make sure there's no, no mixture, there's no uncleanliness that happens at these things. Jesus comes along and says, it's all clean. This would be mind-blowing to a Jew. How in the world can you declare all all foods clean? Jesus walks around. He touches dead bodies, people who the Old Testament would describe as ritually unclean. There's a woman who, who has an issue of blood. She's menstruating. For like 12 years, she has this problem. She is unclean. She touches Jesus. Now, if an unclean woman touched a man you know what you had to do you had to go through this whole cleansing process jesus doesn't do anything now why he dies on a cross and in that moment it says the curtain that separated what they understood to be the presence of god from people it said it tore in two and the whole point of that was to say All of that, now you have access to God. Now what makes you pure is not the blood of a bull or a goat or a pigeon or a dove. What makes you pure is the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So now you place your trust. What makes you clean is not the clothes you wear. It's not the food you eat. It's Jesus and so this is what's happening in the background. Now, by the way, let me step aside here for a moment and just say something. This helps explain something, Christian, because one of, the, one of the narratives about Christians out in culture is this. See, the problem with you Christians is that you pick and choose which law of the Old Testament you'll, you'll receive and which you won't. So you do things like this. You say, you, say, you know, well, we love shellfish and pigs, so we can eat that now. But we don't think, you know, we think adultery and homosexuality is wrong, so we're going to keep those laws and not keep the others. And so what you do is you're inconsistent. Now, how in the world can you do that? How can you say you can't eat shellfish, but there's another law that says homosexuality is wrong or adultery is wrong. Why do you choose between the two? We're not choosing between the two. And let me tell you why. It's because we read our New Testament, and the New Testament demands that we set aside the ceremonial law. It demands that we no longer look at things like shellfish and, and, and pig and mixed blends of clothing and all those things. Why? Because we believe in the final sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And we believe the only thing that makes us pure is that. On the other hand, every single one of the moral and ethical laws of the Old Testament were reaffirmed in the New Testament. Do you know this? Are you still, still, still supposed to love your neighbor? Yes. Can you commit adultery? No. Can you murder? No. Everything, all that ethic gets picked up and transferred back. And both Paul and Jesus and James and Peter and John, it's all affirmed. Again, this is why we do that. Now, get back to Peter. Get back to Galatians chapter 2. Here's what's happening. So Peter is an Old Testament Jew. And even though Peter heard Jesus declare all foods clean, it's almost like Peter didn't quite get it. He wrestled with this. How in the world can Jews and Gentiles come together? How, how, how can Gentiles become part of the people of God? And so one night it says, we, we read about in Acts chapter 10, uh, and, then, and then Peter retells the story in Acts chapter 11. He says, one time I, was, I fell into a trance. It was like this deep sleep, and I had this vision. And the vision was this big sheet coming out of the clouds. And it came down, and it rested in front of me. And on the sheet was, was you know lobster and pig and all these things I'm not supposed to eat as a Jew. And he says, I heard the voice of Jesus say to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And he said, not me, Lord. I mean, you know me. I have never let any of those unclean. I have never eaten a slice of bacon in my life. I'm not going to do it. And, and Jesus responds in this, in this vision and says, Peter, what I have made clean, don't you call common. In other words, it's all clean. That boundary is lifted. This would have been shocking to Jewish ears. Then then it says that after that he went out and he preached to a Gentile believer, to a Gentile man and his family, and they all became Cornelius, and his whole household was saved. And Peter said, surely now I understand that God doesn't show any distinction between Jew and Gentile. So he knows this, right? Now fast forward to Galatians chapter 2, and what's Paul narrating? What's he telling us? He tells a story. Now the Jews come to town, and and Peter says, you know what? Now that you're here, now I have to separate myself from the Gentiles. Now, oh no, this circumcisionist party is here, and so now I I can't be friends with the Gentiles anymore. what, What is going on here? Why did he do that? Here again. He's going back to the old Peter. He's going back to this Old Testament. He's going back, and it says he did it for fear. Now, this is really key. He's afraid of them. He's afraid of what other people will think, hear me, Christian, if they see me around this other group of people. You ever done this? Like young people. I know it's a, it's a big deal, right? You're in the cafeteria and you know that person's actually a friend, but I can't let that other group know that they're a friend because they do. Then I'm not as cool and I won't have much, you know, as much social clout and I'll be sort of ostracized. But listen to me, young people. We don't grow out of this. We just get better about it. So a lot of you, you go, you know, I, I come to church, and yeah, I mean, there's this guy, and we're really nice to each other, and you know, I like him, and we like each other, and we hug each other at church, but man, I don't know that I'd ever want to have him in my home. I, I don't know that I'd ever want to be friends. I mean, birds of a feather flock together after, after all, Pastor Chris, and so, so I you know, we could never really associate with one another, and so I keep that person. In fact, it would kind of be weird in my social status, it would be kind of weird in my socioeconomic group to bring that person along. Or I think to myself, you know what, I'm kind of doing that person a favor. They're not as high class as I am. They don't really have the same color of skin as I do. They They don't share my political views. And so I sort of think of them as lesser than I am. I would never say that at church. But in fact, that's how I treat them. Do you see this? This is exactly what is happening to Peter. And it says it led Peter, this fear of what other people thought of him, it led him to, Paul says, hypocrisy. And that hypocrisy actually led other people astray. Barnabas, this this king of encouragement who usually is just embracing and hugging people apparently. And Peter, even his hypocrisy leads Barnabas astray. And what's hypocrisy? This is very interesting that he says Peter was being a hypocrite. Hypocrisy, we actually borrowed that word from the Greek language, hypokritos, and it literally means somebody who wears a mask. It comes from the world of the theater, and it's a mask where somebody who acts one way on the outside. They believe something totally different. So here's what Paul is telling us. Peter didn't believe this. He didn't believe that the Gentiles were lesser people. He really didn't, but he acted like it he acted in a way that was that, that that wasn't true to who God had created him to be through the gospel. And so here's what's fascinating. Now, now look at what Paul says, and this is really where I want us to camp here in chapter 2 verse 14. So Paul sees all this. He's already said I opposed him to his face and he sees this and in verse 14 he says, "But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I rebuked them. Now, the thing I want you to key in on there is that Paul looks at what Peter is doing in light of what he knows Peter really knows. Like, here's what Paul saw. Here's what Peter saw in Jesus in the flesh he saw him eating with Gentiles and tax collectors. He saw him associating with people who would have made him impure. And Paul says, I saw this. I saw Peter's conduct. He stood condemned because this, and the problem with Peter's conduct is that it was not in step with the gospel. Now that has massive implications for us. Because Paul is telling us that it is possible it is possible for us to nullify the gospel, what we say we believe, with our actions. It's possible for you to say one thing and act another way and it to be out of step with the gospel. See, see, the, 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 for Paul, Paul's saying the gospel doesn't just govern what I believe, it governs how I behave. And so what he intends for you and I to see is that the gospel is a grid for all of your life. The gospel, let's say it this way, is a lens that I'm supposed to look through and it's supposed to change all of life. It's supposed to have ramifications in every part of my life. And this is what it means to walk in step with the gospel, so as Tim Keller has said, like the gospel's not just the ABCs of Christianity. You know what he means? It's not just sort of this elementary school. Like, what gets you saved? Oh, the gospel. And that's kind of the the baby stuff. That's the milk of the Christian life. But we grow up to bigger and better things. No, the gospel, Keller says, is the A to Z of the Christian life. It's the beginning, the middle, the almost the end, the end. It's all the way through. The gospel is everything. Christ is our life. We learn to see all of life through the gospel lens. Have you done that? Are you learning to do that? Now, be careful, because I'm not saying, have you learned how to become religious? Because if Paul is fighting against anything in in, in this section, it's Peter's religion. Peter's just being incredibly religious right now. See, this is not about religion, but it's not about irreligion, right? It's not a dismissal of everything. See, here's what religion is. Religion is truth without grace, right? Religion is simply saying that you have to obey a bunch of rules. Here's the truth. There's no grace in it. Irreligion is grace without truth. It's saying that, you know, if there is a God, He loves everybody. There's no standards here. Morality is just kind of what your morality is, what my morality is. We kind of make up our own as we go along. And both of these are ditches on the side of the gospel road that Paul's saying, this is where life, this is where the Christian life is lived. Walk this line. This is what it means to live in step with the gospel. The gospel will change every part of your life. So here's all I want to do for the rest of our time together. I, I just want us to look and say, what does it look like to do that? What does it look like to live in step with the gospel? What does it look like for us to, to walk on this line? Well, let me let me just say, in a, sort of as an introduction to this, if you ever want to do a Bible study on this and just sort of, okay, what does that look like? Just read Paul's letters. Because here's what Paul's letters do. The first half, almost of every letter he does, just of what you use Galatians, Ephesians, the first half of those letters are all about the gospel. Here's what we believe. Here's what God has done. Here's what Christ has done. Here's the sacrifice. Here's this glorious truth of what Christ has done to reconcile sinners to himself. And the last half is simply, now how do you behave? In light of that, how do you behave? What does it look like to walk? In other words, so now what I believe overflows into my life. So I don't just say I believe that salvation is by grace through faith, you know, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. I actually learn how that actually should impact every part of my life. I didn't deserve it. God came after me. When I was unlovable, he loved me. He forgave me. He did all of these things at the cost of his own life. And he didn't do it because I deserved it. He did it while I was still a sinner. And this truth now overflows into every part of your life. Do you see this? And so what I want to do is I want to take that and I want to now apply that to arenas of our lives. Okay, because I, I, I can't, we could literally, all the Bible is about this. All of Paul's letters are about this. So we could go on for days talking, but let me give you some sort of big rocks and help us understand how do we bring this area of our life, what does it mean to walk the gospel line in this area, okay? So we'll start with the gospel and ethnic harmony because I think this is where Paul is. Do you understand? See, we hear Jew and Gentile. And for most of us, that means nothing. Do, do you understand the racial overtones that are happening in this passage? Like this is, a, this is an act of racism on Peter's part. This is Peter looking at somebody else and saying, I'm going to disassociate myself from you because of your ethnicity. And the Bible says, Paul's going to come along, and he says right here, this is out of step. We cannot look at Christian brothers and sisters of a different ethnicity and treat them differently. We must not. Some of you know Ebenezer Puplampu, and Ebenezer told me this last week. We are in our growth group, and he was he was telling us is that, that he lived in Germany for a little while and he went to a church. Thank God he didn't have to say this about Foothill Church. And I, I only say this, I don't know what the church is, I'm not going to name it. He says he went to this church and they served communion. E- e- Ebenezer's from, from Ghana, Africa. And they served all the white people and they served him separately because he was black. That ought to make you weep. That ought to make you like, this is disgusting. That's out of line with the gospel. Do you see this? So so Paul, he's going to write in Ephesians chapter 2, you know what God did in Christ? It says he nails all our sins to the cross. He forgives us. But he says, you know what he did? He reconciled us not only just to God, he reconciled one to another, Jew and Gentile. By the way, he's using that as like race to race. So that in Christ, we are no longer Jew and Gentile. It's going to tell us this later, even in Galatians. We are now one new man. Do you know what this means? That means that your primary identity is not your ethnicity. It's not the color of your skin. It's Jesus if you're a Christian. You are part of a new race of people. That's amazing. I now belong to something totally different. Now listen. Foothill Church, hear me. I don't I don't think we've mastered this. I'm very encouraged. I gotta tell you, I'm very encouraged. I look around the room and I see black and white and Asian and Hispanic and, you know, all of these different colors in this room. And listen to me, we ought to celebrate that. That ought to be, it is so good when there are people from different backgrounds and ethnicities and cultures and skin colors who are having lunch together and fellowshipping together and in growth groups together and eating dinner together and all that. We ought to say, this is what the kingdom of God is going to look like. And this is something wonderful. I didn't plan it this way, but on the group of guys that are being trained to be elders. We have an African. We have a Middle Eastern guy. We, we got a we got an Italian. We got a Hispanic. I mean, and I'm like, look at this. This is wonderful. This is an amazing thing that God has brought all of this together. And I'm not looking and going, you know what, I'm picking you because you're African and picking you because you're Middle Eastern. But you bring it together and go, this is awesome that God is just doing that. That's wonderful. Because hear me, Church, what Paul's going to tell us in Ephesians chapter 2 is that this is what there are, Ephesians chapter 3, he says there are rulers and authorities, there are powers, if you will, that are peering in on this church right now, unseen by us, and they are blown away by what he calls the manifold wisdom of God. Because isn't this what our culture is fighting about right now? slicing us all up into all these differences but people ought to be able to look at the church and go that's an alternative culture. There's something bigger going on there. There's something beautiful happening there. Look, they're not getting along because they're being forced to get along. They're getting along because where their agreement is is not in the color of their skin. It's not in their politics. It's not in any of these things. It's not their social status. It's not their class. It's not their culture and their th- ethnicity. What brings them together is Jesus Christ. That's worth celebrating. That's how the gospel brings ethnic harmony. Now listen, you know why you, if you don't feel that, let me suggest a reason why you may not feel that, why that may not be a celebration for you. Because you're in one of the ditches. Because what you're doing is you're you're not living in line with the gospel because where you find your value is in your culture. Where you find your self-esteem is in your ethnicity or the color of your skin. And and listen, this is not just a majority culture thing, by the way. I, I know it's there, so let's all say it out loud. Majority culture folk, sometimes you look and you think you're superior to minority culture folk. But it can be a minority culture. You have no idea what we've been through. We have suffered more than you, so we are superior to you. And hear me, neither of those have any place in the household of God. We're one new man. And people ought to look in and say, How does this happen? How is it that all those cultures can blend in there? And nobody's, you know, I'm not looking at people and go out and see your color. I see it, and I think it's awesome that God would bring together all of these, right? That will make us go, this is wonderful that God does this. That's one of those things the gospel just simply creates. And we ought to celebrate it when we see it. That's the gospel. That's how the gospel brings ethnic harmony. That's how we walk the gospel line with ethnic harmony. I'm no longer identified by ethnicity, by my color of my skin, by those things. I'm identified by the fact that I'm a child of God and so are you. We can do this together. But how about this? How about the gospel in marriage? Now, we could go on all day about this. Books and books have been written about this. But listen, this is, this is one of the most obvious implications because Paul's going to say in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 33, he's basically going to say this. When God created the world and he brought the first man and woman together in, Ephes- in, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 2, he had the gospel in mind. Because then he's going to come along in in Ephesians chapter 5 after having unpacked the gospel for the first half of Ephesians saying one of the implications now of the gospel being worked out in your life is marriage, is when you have a husband and a wife who are joined in marriage, then one of the things that ought to be happening is the gospel ought to be percolating up and flavoring everything in that marriage. So I tell couples, every couple I married, I think I've said to them, if you can unlock the gospel in your home, and I'd say this to everybody, you will have an amazing marriage. What does that look like? What's it look like to unlock the gospel in your home? Paul tells us. Now hear me, and don't turn me off until I'm done here. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to Christ. Husbands, lay down your life as Christ laid down his life for his bride. You do that for yours. Now everybody gets sort of fixated on the on the woman and submission and you know, submit, submit, submit. But hear me. I, I just can you imagine a marriage where a wife lays down her rights in submission to her husband, and the husband lays down his rights, dying to himself for her. I'm telling you, let me, let me tell you what you'll see. If you ever find a marriage like that, you'll be like, I want in on that. Because that's just not a good marriage, that's an amazing marriage. That's two people outdoing one another and showing honor. That's two people never saying anything like, well, he didn't, so I won't. Well, she didn't, so I won't. That's two people saying, even if she's unloving, I will love her. Even if she has hurt me or he has hurt me. I don't mean like you have to take physical abuse. I'm saying, but in the normalness of marriage, you know what? He offended me. He did this to me, and I can't forgive him. God would never say that to you. And you will never, ever be asked to forgive more than Christ has forgiven you. And when you learn to play that out in marriage, like, do you see this? See, in fact, the couples that come in for counseling or find themselves in trouble, almost always, I can say this, almost always, it's a failure to understand and appropriate the truth of the gospel. I can't forgive him. I don't want to forgive him. He did this, so I did that. That's just not the way the gospel works. This is walking the gospel line. How about the gospel in parenting? Think about that for a moment. Like, is there a, is there a way to walk the gospel line? Well, think about it. Think about the ditch of religion. You know what religious parents want to do? All they care about is the behavior of their child. mean, right? parents, listen, I think we've all fallen into this trap. I have. I loved it when people would walk up to me in a restaurant and go, wow, your kids are really, really well behaved. Well, it's because I'm a good parent. Right? I have mastered parenting. <laughs> right? And so we congratulate ourselves that we have very moral children who may still be going to hell. Because all I've done is reform their external behavior. You got the irreligious folk who are also in a ditch who are going, you know what? I don't I, I, I don't want to pressure Johnny. I need to let him sort of discover things for himself, and you know, that'll hurt his self-esteem. I'm telling you, both of those are ditches that are going to lead to a train wreck. What the gospel does? The gospel says, point your kids constantly. It thinks in terms of the long term goal. You are not after behavior and you're not after self esteem, you're just not parents. You're after a heart shaped by the gospel. You're after a heart that's shaped, that understands how desperately in need I am of Jesus so that as they grow, they will begin to cry out on their own, oh Jesus, help me, and and, and will find themselves walking the gospel line, learning to walk the gospel line from the time they're children. See, some of you came to faith very late in life and you're going, man, I wish I'd have known this when I was five. I wish somebody would have been sort of inculcating this into me when I was that young. Parents, you can. We went to a conference a couple weeks ago. Shane went to a workshop. There was a guy talking about helping your kids understand the gospel. And, and um, he gave this example. I think this is awesome. He says, The guy, the guy, uh, a parent walked up to him and said, Man, I cannot get my child to stay in bed. I just can't, no matter what I do, I can't get them to stay in bed. They will not do it. And they and and the answer was awesome. That's great. You don't to tell that child? You're going to look at them and say, There's no way you're going to stay in bed without the power of God. You need to cry out to Jesus, Lord, help me to be obedient. I can't do it without you. You see what I mean? That's shaping your child with the gospel. That's connecting their behavior to something's going on in their heart and helping them to begin to understand, Oh, I don't have the ability to be righteous on my own. I need a foreign righteousness to help me. Well, that's the gospel. And it begins to shape their character from a very young age. That's the gospel and parenting. That's walking the gospel line. How about the gospel and sexuality? That's a big one, isn't it? Like if you got you got irreligious folk, they're going to say something like, you know, sexuality and gender is just sort of a social construct. It's, it's kind of, you know, your anatomy is not determinative. Your identity is your orientation. Everybody needs to decide gender for themselves. Who cares that you were born this way or that? It's what you feel. That's the irreligious way, right? There's no standards. Do what you want. Religious folk are going to say exactly the opposite, anatomy is determinative right your orientation is your anatomy and you must not even struggle with it because if you struggle with it that's a sin god's disappointed you you need to stop it you need to repent Isn't that what the gospel does the gospel wedges both of those out and says wait a second we're so broken by sin that even our desires are broken and the bible says that jesus comes and he binds up the brokenhearted. Jesus comes and redeems us from our sin. Right? This is what the gospel does. Jesus comes and now and now just like race, now my my identity is not orientation. Now my identity is bound up in Jesus. And listen, by God's grace, there are so many people who have who have come to faith in Jesus and and that whole disordering of their desires and their orientation has Jesus Jesus has actually redeemed that and, and brought them out of that. But listen, there's church, there's going to be a lot of people who struggle with this until the day they die. And they struggle. And the gospel doesn't kick them to the side. It says, we're here to struggle with you because one day the struggle is going to be over and one day all those desires are going to be put to right. And the child that you know you are, you're going to see Jesus face to face. God is your father. We are your brothers and sister and we are here with you in whatever struggle you're going through, right? This is not giving a thumbs up to any sin. It's not. It's saying, I recognize that I'm broken, I recognize that I'm a sinner, and you're here to help me, and I'm here to help you. That's walking the gospel line. How about, how about the gospel and suffering? You know what a religious person will do with suffering? They'll say things like this, the reason I'm suffering is because I must be bad. Right? I'm being punished, right? This is why I'm going. So what that does then is now I'm angry at God because isn't it true that the whole point of religion is to is so that God owes you. But I'm re- the whole reason I, I obey all these rules is because I got to make God my debtor and God's got to then come through and I should never have to suffer. So when I do, I'm really mad at God. Why would you do this? You know I serve you. You know I'm good to you. You owe me God. That's a religious reaction. An irreligious reaction goes, you know what? I will not suffer. I will lie, cheat, steal. All those are just sort of, you know, relative anyway, and I'll do whatever I have to avoid suffering. I'm not going to suffer. Suffering is not good. But then when suffering happens, interestingly, they blame the God that doesn't exist. And they'll say things like, see? If there is a God, he doesn't care. Or if there is a God, he's totally impotent to help me. What does the gospel say? The gospel goes, no. Jesus redeemed you and me through suffering so that through suffering we could become more like Jesus. It means that I'll never go through anything that Jesus can't say, I've been there. I've done that. I know what that feels like. And it says that he learned patience. He learned all kinds of things through suffering. And now the Bible comes along, James chapter 1, and says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because we know that those trials produce character and endurance and all these things. Romans chapter 5, right? We rejoice in our sufferings. Why? Because we know that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope will not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through his Holy Spirit who's been given to us that is walking the gospel line of suffering. But how about how about how about the final one? The gospel in depression, anxiety. See a religious person is going to look at suffering and anxiety and they're going to say, see, I'm, uh, I, I'm being punished. I'm, I'm, it's because I broke the rules. This is why I feel this way. The irreligious person is going to say, my problem, right? I'm, I'm suffering because I just haven't accepted myself yet. And so if I'm religious, what I've got to do is work on my behavior and get it in line. If I'm irreligious, I've got to work on my emotions so that I can accept myself and get those in line. And the gospel goes, no. It looks at... Anxiety and depression, the way David looked at it. David says in the Psalms, he says, Why so downcast O my soul? You want to look at a depressed guy? Look at David. He says, Why so downcast O my soul? And why such turmoil within me? That's anxiety, that's depression. And David says, oh, I know why. He does this sort of soul searching. He does this kind of heart surgery. And he looks inside and says, okay, the reason I feel this way, he goes on to answer his own question. He says, put your hope in God. I realize the, way, the reason I feel anxious, the real, a reason I feel depressed is because I, the, the locust, the, the place of my hope is not God. I have put my hope in other things, and those things are disappointing me all the time. And so it doesn't turn me inward. It doesn't turn me inward to try and find something in myself. In fact, I despair when I look inside myself. It turns me outward, and I look to Jesus, and I repent of putting my hope in something else. And Jesus is there. I mean, this is why repentance is such a wonderful thing, to give us hope. I'm going to remedy that for you. Do you see what I mean? So when Paul looks at Peter and says, Peter, you failed to walk the gospel line, and rebukes him openly, boy, there's a whole lesson in there. That this is a community project. This is a place where... One of the reasons we belong to a church, one of the reasons we come in and we sort of fellowship and say this is going to be the place that I do my life. This is the place where I'm going to be spiritually accountable to people. Some of you are spiritually accountable to no one. You flit in and out of churches just sort of how you feel. Whatever day it is, you know, I'll go to this church this day, I like their worship, I like this preaching, whatever. There's no accountability at all. So nobody could ever step into your life like Paul. And rebuke you. Hear me. I can say with God as my witness, if I ever begin to walk off the gospel line, if I ever begin to get out of that, I pray to God there are elders, there are people, there is a wife, there are staff members like Shane who would walk up to me and rebuke me for getting out of the gospel line. We don't want that. We ought to want that if that's what it takes to get us back in the line. Because the other is unthinkable. Peter stood condemned. And I think the point there is that if Peter keeps walking that line, it's just an indication that he is in either outward, utter rebellion against God or Peter was never regenerated in the first place. Because Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 12, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How could I condemn him? See, Christian, we ought to want this. We ought to want people who will help us, who will help us not only see it, but walk us, help us when we step out of line, gently bring us back, and sometimes not so gently bring us back if that's what it takes. By the grace of God. That we live and step with the gospel and we learn to see Everything to the gospel. Grid. Here, here's the thing. See, see, all of this, you know why this is so wonderful? Because it means that when, when Paul says in Romans that I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation, he really means it. He doesn't mean it'll just get you saved. He means the gospel can actually transform your life. It can change you as you learn to walk the gospel line. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And again, we are so in awe of the truth of the gospel. And pray, Lord, that we would be people that would walk that gospel line. God, teach us, show us. We, we find ourselves so often going, I don't know what to do. And I pray the gospel would, would teach us, would help us. We would begin, even as we fellowship with other believers and growth groups and put ourselves around other people, that God, we would learn together what it means. What does it look like? to live all of life, to see all of life, to see work in all of these arenas and, and walk the gospel line. God, I I thank you. I thank you that you have allowed us to be a church that walks in harmony with one another. The fact that in this room and across both campuses, Lord, there are people of so many races and ethnicities and skin colors and yet here we are, baffling the rulers and authorities that would look in and say, how is this happening? Lord, it's not because we've been clever. It's because that is an evidence of the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're so thankful for that. And I pray this would be a place, God. I pray it'd be a place where where more and more and more we would see that kind of diversity, Lord. We'd see more and more of that happening. We'd celebrate it more and more where people would be reaching across lines and and developing friendships and fellowshipping and eating with people who aren't quite like them. And there would be a great joy in doing that, God. We love you, God. We thank you that the gospel isn't just an idea that stays sort of external to us. It's not just this thing that gets us saved. We thank you, God, that it powers us for the rest of our lives. And I pray we'd tap into that. We love you, we thank you, and we ask this in Jesus' name.